0: Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast, with yoga teacher and strength coach Laurel Beaversdorf and physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher.
1: Welcome to season three of the Movement Logic podcast. I'm Laurel Bieberstorff, CSCS, that's Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist, also ERYT Experienced Registered Yoga Teacher, 500 hours. <laughs> and I'm here with my co host, Dr. Sarah Court. She only has three letters, though DPT. <laughs>
0: I'm gonna say my three letters are more expensive than all of your letters combined. Oh, a lot. More. <laughs> I also have the E R Y T. You do. You
1: have you have as many letters as me. Oh wait, no. C S E S has four four letters. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. It also always makes me laugh that the E of E R Y T is experienced. Like that's such a weird word you, you to really, put in your title. Yeah. To get it, you don't really need that much experience at all. No. <laughs> okay. Like if you were if you were listening to the Jimi Hendrix song, "Are You Experienced?" The answer would be no, not really. Yeah. <laughs> no. So we're still
1: in LA. We are. Well, I live here. I mean, you do. Yeah. And I'm dependent on you for the next four days to keep me alive. Oh, boy. So I'm currently still living. Is this what it's like to parent? While I'm here. Shit. No wonder I never had children. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want to rent me for like four days, you'll get a really good idea of what parenting is like. I'm constantly hungry. That's true. One of my best friends, I went and stayed at her house for a couple of days and she was like, you are like a newborn. You need to eat every two hours. I was like, that's true. Yeah. I'm not going to deny that. No. We're having fun. I mean, we so far, like I slept about 10 hours last night. We're going to go on a hike later today. We are. I ate a delicious chicken salad
0: made by my mom. California is
1: really lovely weather all the time even when it's there's a heat advisory. Yes. Does not even compare to Alabama in the summer so I'm, I'm having I'm
0: living my best life. Excellent. Yeah it's also it is a really good time to be here from the perspective of fruit because it's late July and it's peak fruit season for things like berries and nectarines and we're coming up on fig season pretty soon I think it's a little early for the figs but like you know really good avocado
1: I'm just the word bountiful yes bountiful
0: it's bountiful
1: <laughs> the flush of the buttocks of bounty oh god yeah all right hopefully you remember that 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 joke from the
0: First episode oh, of season three. Oh, right. I thought we, you were talking
1: we, to me. We were just joking about that a couple of hours ago. Because yes. we're batch recording.
0: Mm. Okay. Uh, yes. We're having a good time.
1: And I, another way that I like to have a good time is by humble bragging. Sure. And one of the ways I like to humble brag mm. is I like to read positive things that other people have said about me. Mm. That way it doesn't sound like I'm bragging. Right. It's what someone else said. I'm just reading it. Yeah. So I would like to read a review cool. written by someone named Caitlin C. NYC.
0: I know who this person is. I mean, so do I. Yes. So she's a friend it. She's a friend of the pod. She is a friend of the pod. And I would say also, it wouldn't take much sleuthing for many people to figure out who Caitlin C. from New York is, if you listen to any of our stuff or if you're in the movement world at all. Right. But anyway, she said lots of
1: nice things. She gave us five stars. Whew. And then she wrote, thank you, Laurel and Sarah, for shedding light, humor, and curiosity on so many important topics in the movement nerd multiverse. Then she put the nerdy face emoji. I appreciate the evidence-based and inquiry-rich approach. Laurel's SI joint episode gets a big yes from me. As a former yoga teacher, now physical therapist, I can totally relate to Laurel's story. I found myself nodding my head through the whole listen. Five stars. Highly recommend. That's a five-star review. The episode on the SI joint was also very popular.
0: What I like so far is you've said that every episode is very popular.
1: Well, the ones we talk about.
0: (laughs) Yes, but so far you've only talked about episodes that are very popular. I don't know where I'm going. You can edit that out. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to talk about you. Oh, right. I'm editing this episode. You are. Okay, let's
1: stop the banter. Let's
0: get down to brass tacks here. Okay. Oh, I like that now that the (laughs) editing is your problem, now you're like really concerned about waffling. We have to stay on topic. (laughs) Please. I'm all ears. I'm just kidding. Today we're
1: talking about alignment dogma and specifically alignment dogma about your spine. So if you listen to episode one of season three or... 48. Episode 48 you heard us discuss alignment dogma of the pelvis. So today we're talking about the spine. We'll probably spend the majority of time talking about the lower back because that is the hottest of dogma hotspots. And then we'll discuss the upper back and the neck a little as well. Okay. Alignment dogma is basically when we take something like our ability to cue people into a particular alignment, or even just our ability to observe a particular alignment and ascribe some meaning to it that has not been supported by evidence. We're calling this alignment dogma. What we're not saying is that alignment, paying attention to alignment, observing alignment, describing alignment, or teaching alignment is a bad thing. Not at all. I think really the aim of these episodes is to raise awareness around the fact that it is just not borne out, in the research in any evidence that alignment predicts pain or that posture or even you could say movement quality we will use these terms interchangeably predict pain we're going to share some background around where people might have gotten this idea that it does though and like i mentioned we're going to focus quite a bit on the lower back because there's an awful lot of vilification of lower back position flexion yes rounding the lower back oh my god um an awful lot okay but before we talk about spinal alignment dogma let's actually tour the spine from an anatomical perspective and talk about you know what are the bones what are what are the way these bones kind of fit together and and what are the joints involved in this thing that we call the spine all right so First of all, before we get into the different regions of the spine, the curves of the spine, the discs even, let's just take a moment to appreciate how many joints make up the spine. Before
0: we do that, let's actually, what is a joint? I love a joint. Yeah. I mean a joint in your body. I think joints are fascinating. Right. I love them.
1: Oh, yeah. Me too. Me Mm -hmm. too. Oh, yeah. That's what I thought you were talking about. I
0: don't know what you, Oh, the other thing I'd be talking about.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Me either. Okay, never mind. So there are 364 joints,
0: one for almost every day of the year. Or uh wait, is a leap year 364? Yeah, 366. Is there an extra day in a leap year? Or yes, there's there's February right. 29th. That's right. Sometimes I forget things that I learned a long time ago. I'm sure <laughs> some people have 366 joints in their spine. Definitely. Yes. So
1: 366 joints, 65 joints, 64 joints, somewhere in that range. A year's worth of joints. A joint is a place where two or more bones meet, where movement happens. Yes. And we have 364. Okay. Give or take a few. In the spine. It's wild. I can think of a couple of other areas of the body where we have a preponderance of joints.
0: Preponderance?
1: Mm, The feet. Yes. One foot has 33 joints. The hand, probably somewhere in the 33 joint. I'm not really sure how many, but somewhere in there. Sounds good. And whenever I think we see a lot of joints in a particular area of the body, a body part, right? Mm -hmm. The torso being a very large body part. We're going to go, okay, I think that area should probably move a lot. Yeah. Because it's designed to move a lot. And it probably depends on the fact that we move it a lot or hopefully move it a lot to maintain its level of health and functionality. So each vertebra of the spine, there's seven in the neck, there's 12 in the thoracic, the the neck is the cervical spine, the thoracic spine is what we would call like the upper back, and then the lumbar spine, which we call the lower back, there's seven in the cervical spine, 12 in the thoracic spine, five in the lumbar spine. Um, These are all movable segments. And there are many joints just within one spinal segment. There's the disc joint, there's the facet joints, which are posterior facing and determine basically how much your spine can move in any given direction. There's even rib joints and all of these places where movement happens, where two or more bones meet, allow for some movement. Some allow for more movement than others. Then there's also the discs which are not bone.
0: Can you tell us about the discs, sir? Yeah. So the discs are cartilage-based and they are in between the body of each vertebra to the next, right? The body is the big fat part. And the discs, I'm not gonna go too much into the anatomy of the disc, but essentially it has a tough outer part and a softer inner part. And the purpose of the discs, discs essentially is to help absorb some of the impact of uh, that ground reaction force when you are walking or running, so that it doesn't shake your brain essentially, <laughs> right? It, it absorbs some of it and it redistributes it uh, laterally out to the sides or like circumferentially all the way around. Uh, it what, also
1: creates separation between the vertebrae. The vertebrae, yeah. so that you can move them relative to each other. Potentially more, it's like a little mattress in between.
0: Yeah, and it helps to create sort of a smoothness in the relationship of those vertebrae, so they're not like ting 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 to each other, but there's actually kind of like a, more like a garden hose quality. Mm,
1: yeah, I like that. I like that image. Yeah, and the spine can move in all three planes. Mm-hmm. Some of the regions of the spine move more or less than others, but just generally speaking, your spine can flex. It can extend, and that's in the sagittal plane. You stoop or bow or round forward that's flexion when you back bend that's extension it can side bend we call that lateral flexion when one side of the spine gets shorter the other side gets longer in length or you know you can side bend to one side or the other side It's lateral flexion lateral extension and then rotation so the top part of your spine can rotate relative to the bottom part the bottom part can rotate relative to the top part
0: three planes of movement You want to tell us about the curves? Each So if we think about the sections of the spine, the cervical, the thoracic, and the lumbar, each section is going to have, has a different type of a curve potentially, and also different range of motion, partly based on that curve. So the cervical spine and the lumbar spine both have lordotic curves or lordosis, which means And this is where I every single time does this happen to you with like certain things you learned as a child where every time you have to do the trick to remember what it's called so convex versus concave so concave is like a cave so it goes in so that's what a lordosis is if you're viewing it from behind right the concavity of your neck and your low back is going into the cave of your body. Mm -hmm. And then your thoracic spine and your sacrum to some extent do the opposite. They do something called kyphosis or kyphosis depending on who's talking. And that is a convex curve that moves out of your body towards you if you're facing the person from behind.
1: So the cervical curve and the lumbar curve are kind of like if you view somebody in say all four, all fours or four point pose or tabletop Mm -hmm. look like valleys. Yeah. And then the kyphosis would look more like hills
0: yes and so each part of the spine does have different amounts of range of motion in different directions it is totally natural to have curves that are very curvy and it is totally natural to have curves that are almost not even there at all Mm. like i've had patients where i you know run my hand down their spine and it's practically a straight line and that might cause some you know scapular issues around the shape of the scapula in relation to the rib cage but nothing major. Mm-hmm. So just something to think about. Like if you're like, well, my I don't think my spine curves very much at all, you're probably still fine. Nothing's gonna happen.
1: Yeah, so when you go to the chiropractor and they x-ray your spine and tell you that your low back pain is because you have a flattened lumbar curve, maybe get a second opinion. Uh, 100% get yeah. a second opinion. Yeah.
0: So each part of your spine does have a different amount of range of motion available to it. Generally speaking, your cervical spine, your neck, has the most range of motion in every direction. And this is both, this is a sort of like form follows function in that the neck only has your head on top of it. So it doesn't have to hold the weight and possibly be more stable the way that like your low back does when it's got your head and your trunk and your arms all sitting on top of it, right? Mm -hmm. And the other part of your cervical spine is your neck has maximum like tilt and angling available so that you can see every direction for either a predator or for your lunch right right or perhaps your dinner any meal
1: or for when you're shopping and you want to find the sale rack or the cashier absolutely to purchase your pants
0: that's those two reasons are the only reasons that your head moves three reasons pants purchase predators or prey lunch Mm -hmm. uh your thoracic spine Does not have as much movement available to it although it has in some ways more available than the lumbar spine some of that is a function of like if you if you look at the thoracic vertebrae and you look at the spinous processes on the back they point down
1: the spinous processes are like the stegosaurus spikes
0: right they're the ones you can feel if you touch your spine those are the bumps that you feel in your thoracic spine they generally point down uh your rib cage area is quite good at flexion right which makes sense because that's the shape it lives in, right? Mm -hmm. That kyphosis, kyphosis. It's not great at extension. It's medium at side bend. It's quite good at rotating, right? A lot of that is a function of your rib cage is there to protect your heart and your lungs and your other, some of your other organs, but mainly your heart and your lungs. Mm -hmm. So there is a real reason not to have a ton of mobility in this part of your spine. And then your low back spine, your lumbar spine, has some in the sagittal plane, flexion and extension, it has quite a bit of movement available to it. It has some amount of side bend available, and it has almost, not zero, but it has very, very little rotation.
1: Yeah, and and I'll say too that, like, sometimes we think that the lower back can do like a ton of flexion and a ton of extension, But when we watch someone move, say if they're doing a forward bend or a back bend, like a lot of times what we're really seeing is the rib cage and the pelvis moving. And it's very deceptive. And we got into this when we talked about pelvic tilt and like really even being able to assess what the position of someone's pelvis is as an outside eye looking in. The same goes with the lower back. We can think, or or any part of the spine, We, we think we know what positions it's in based on like what we see someone doing with their posture. But a lot of times when we compare that with what like really expensive lab equipment is able to measure in a research setting, we see that there's a big gap between what we think is happening or what is moving or what position something is in and what it's actually in. So this this knowledge gap is a really, I think ripe topic to weave into a discussion about alignment and its relationship to safety and or injury and the types of dogmatic beliefs that we can develop around alignment because from the standpoint of epistemology right which is the study of what we can know and how we measure what it is that we think we know or how we know what we know we have to take into account like the limits of our ability even know the thing we're trying to draw conclusions about and a lot of times we're drawing conclusions about something that we don't even realize we don't know which is you know a part of being a human being like we like to tell stories about things sure. without fully understanding them yep. but it, it plays into why we might maybe over Mm, interpret. Yes. Things.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> I think we overinterpret Well, you know, the things we don't know, it feels much more comfortable to make up a story and then feel like we know.
1: Oh, yeah. Way more comfortable. Way more comfortable. And sometimes more fun, too. Sure. So, a little bit about the muscles. There's tons of musculature that moves the spine, not just on the back, I think we focus a lot on the back musculature, but also on the front that wraps all the way around the the sides of the rib cage, which attach to the spine. But generally speaking, it seems like from the back, from the posterior side of the trunk, the muscles tend to get bigger as they get more superficial. Mm -hmm. So you've got the tiny little rotatoris, the multifidi really close to the spinal bones, and then we've got the bigger erector spinae we've got the really big latissimus dorsi dorsi muscle and so these muscles most of them run all the way from the sacrum the pelvis to the to the head some of them just run halfway you know from the say the latissimus from the shoulders to the to the sacrum but for the most part these are massive muscles that kind of work more globally on the entire spine so even just separating out like lumbar movement from upper back movement like we think we're doing it but a lot of times we're not same thing with the lower back and the way it moves relative to the pelvis pretty much i gotta say like anytime your pelvis is moving your lower back is probably moving too yeah so we're talking about alignment dogma and and so again as a as a reminder when we use alignment we're also using in this term is used interchangeably with posture and with movement quality so sarah can you quickly explain slash maybe review what the relationship is according to research according to population size bodies of evidence Mm -hmm. where we're looking at large populations of people not just looking at like this student in your class or your personal experience like this is like lots of people what is the relationship that science has found between alignment slash posture slash movement quality
0: and pain well, yeah, I can answer that. Really, you said to do it briefly. I can do it very briefly. Great. There is none. Oh my god! So
1: wait, a <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm going to, I'm gonna role play with you here, please. Okay. I love, so I'm I the person. I'm the person who has been told my whole life mm. that you know lots of negative consequences arise from bad posture,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like neck pain comes from text neck. Lower back pain comes from lifting with my back or round or slumping in the chair. Um, you know, my my upper back is super hunched and rounded and that's causing all types of negative consequences for my neck and lower back or whatever. Like, so but but you're actually telling me that my suffering has no relationship to my posture.
0: Well, your suffering has more relationship to the lack of changes and the lack of variety in the way that you sit or stand or move and lift and the way that the muscles around your spine are being used repetitively. Like any repetitive injury is something where you've misused something or just overused it beyond what it can tolerate Mm -hmm. over time, right? So- people who say like, oh, I'm really, you know, people come into the clinic all the time and they're like, I'm really worried about my posture. I think my posture is really bad. I need to fix my posture. And it may be that that person spends 10 hours a day without a break sitting in front of a computer. Like that is sounds that sounds an, like an exaggeration to a lot of us, but it's not. I see a lot of people who do that and who maybe get up once or twice so mm-hmm. they're basically doing the same thing as being on a long-haul flight every single day mm-hmm. right that is that part is what's going to potentially cause them pain and suffering mm-hmm. the shape itself for want of a better term is neutral mm-hmm. right so but it's the how much time when you, are you
1: say neutral you mean it's like not inherently good benign. Or bad
0: the, the eh. shape is benign right it's the how much time are you spending in that shape? What other shapes are you maybe now not able to do yeah. because of the quality of how your muscles are working? That's that's where the potential for pain is coming from.
1: Right. But a lot of people in conventional wisdom would have us believe, a lot of people believe that you can look at someone, notice their postural uniqueness or their postural tendency and know kind of where they probably have pain. And it turns out this is not the case. Mm-mm. So. It's difficult to wrap our minds around this because I think it's a real human tendency to take two events that seem to happen simultaneously or one happens before the other, right? Because this happened first and then this happened. That's the post hoc fallacy, Mm -hmm. right? And then two events that occur simultaneously that they must be related, right? And so we ascribe meaning to things based on other things that happened concurrently or preceded the thing. Like, so if we get pain, we go, I must have had pain because I have this bad posture, this tendency towards slouching, or it's like I'm a person with a maybe more posteriorly tilted pelvis, and because of that just way of being in my body, that is occurring simultaneously with my pain they must be related. And so this is this is a a logical fallacy actually because it's not the case just because two things happen concurrently or one thing precedes another does not mean that there's any relationship between them. Absolutely. It could just be coincidence. Nor does it mean that the thing happened that that happened prior to the other thing caused the 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 second thing to happen.
0: You know how when people watch sports Mm. and if they're very superstitious about it they'll be like i have to wear my team scarf or whatever while i'm watching the game and if i don't they're gonna lose right that's about the same level as saying i have to sit with good posture all the time and if i don't i'm gonna have pain
1: right The, the the not only is the green sweatshirt that
0: was the color Oh, I didn't pick a color, but sure. Oh,
1: not, not only does the green team sweatshirt or whatever it is not cause the team to win, there's actually also no relationship right. between wearing a green sweatshirt and teams winning or losing. Yes. Yes, I agree. That, that was a good um, example. I was also thinking of the example where they they, they did a really poorly designed study about people getting up off of the floor yeah and if they the claim was that if you can get up off of the floor without using your hands this is a predictor of longevity
0: Mm -hmm. can you tell us like yeah well my favorite thing about that is (laughs) i i mean my least favorite thing about it is a lot of people still point to that study as like you should be able to do this movement and if you can't good luck, you're going to die, or whatever. Maybe they don't say that, but they're like, this is really important that you can do this. And I'm like, well, is it? Or are there things around most of the time that you can use to help yourself get up? But regardless, that's not the point. The point is, the study said, if you had to put down like a hand or a knee while you were getting up off of the floor, then that was a sign that your life was going to be shorter. But what they found was that the people for whom... They had to put the people who had to put a hand or a knee down were the people who were older, right? Though not, not the 50 year olds, but the 80 year olds. And the thing is, when you're 80, your life is already going to be shorter <laughs> than when you're 50, right? If we're talking about like not anything like natural causes, right? So that was a very like green sweatshirt equals team wins kind of analogy. Like, understanding. Right. They they
1: tried to show a relationship between putting your hand down on the floor and, and living for less time. Yeah. When really the relationship was probably more about age and having to put your hand down. Yeah. And age and not living as long. Right. Is that kind of what we're saying? So the relationship was like misplaced. Yeah. So there's not a relationship, let alone a causal one between posture and pain. But there are ways of predicting not necessarily to a t or hyperactively but ways of maybe looking at a situation taking someone in context and going like i think that might not go well for you mm. and it's not really about their posture rather it might be more about how prepared they are for the activity or movement at hand like how much history in their life do they have doing the thing like i'll give you an example like i used to run a lot when i was 20 stopped running for many many years Every once in a while, in my like 30s, I would get a hankering to go out and like I had like nostalgia for like the years that I would be running around New York City as a 20-year-old, and was like, I want to run again. It was so great for me then; it should be great for me now. And I would go out and I would like go from not having run for 10 years to running three miles. And not only did it, like, hurt, it just, like, was really uncomfortable to do that, but the next day I often would have, like, ooh, my hip flexors are really sore or my knee doesn't feel great or my lower back doesn't feel great because I was not prepared. Right. I had not been ramping up my capacity to be able to engage in running for three miles. I probably should have gone out and maybe did a walk run for 20 minutes, right, or something like that. So movement preparation is a, is a pretty a much better predictor um, of whether or not an activity is going to cause some, someone some issues. Right. Also, you know, maybe, maybe alignment slash posture matters more if we're engaging in activities where loads are relatively high, okay? So if we're going to lift a heavy weight or if we're going to sustain like high amounts of impact or move really quickly, like the rate is high, the rate of loading is high, the magnitude of load is high, posture might matter more. But then the question becomes, is someone who's going from never lifting a weight or not never moving quickly or never sustaining any amount of impact going to suddenly subject themselves to high loads? It's possible, but I think most people are rational, reasonable people. And they understand that they need to
0: build up to these things, unlike me. So I don't know, most of the patients I see who are people who come in with stories like yours where they're like, well, in co- I used to run in college. And then I'll look at my notes and it says they're like 38 or something. And they're like, <laughs> so I thought it'd be fine. So I went for a five mile run and now my knee won't stop hurting. Okay, you're right. People just really aren't that rational. <laughs> and then this makes me think like,
1: why is it then, from my perspective, why does it seem like yoga teachers and Pilates teachers who teach like what I would, think is pretty hopefully people understand like that's a fairly low load activity when compared to things like strength training yeah. or field sports or things like that yeah why are they so protective of people's spines and so fear around like the safety that people are in or not in while doing yoga and pilates and i mean i don't know what do you think sarah like why do, why do you think that yoga teachers? Well, there's, maybe speak from the yoga teacher perspective, maybe you have something to add about Pilates teachers. Why does it seem like there's so much attention to how unsafe or safe people are in, in the class?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think from the perspective of a non-clinician, when you, like, like if I was running a t- yoga teacher training, for example, and I knew I was about to unleash, you know, potentially 20 new yoga teachers on the world, and I would assume that they have little to no understanding of anatomy, biomechanics, kinesiology, all that kind of stuff, I would be really hyping the things that I knew were the most safe, quote unquote, safe for the most people, right? The most the most benign things that I can think of. And also, I'm probably influenced by my teacher training mm-hmm. myself, right? So for example, if I have my yoga teachers, my new yoga teachers, all teach Warrior Two with the cue of aligning your knee over your ankle that is generally a place that most knees can handle i would argue most knees can handle most things <laughs> but if they're teaching you know it, it, this is this is about like let's be as blanket and broad as possible and let's keep like everything as as absolutely benign as possible for that reason, but then, you know, then they'll like go and teach a headstand. So I'm like, well, <laughs> pick, pick your battles here. Like it doesn't make any sense to me There's at all. There's a lot
1: of inconsistency.
0: Um, and the other thing is that I wanted to say as well is this whole idea about like posture and pain and how they're not actually aligned. Part of the reason why they don't correlate is pain is an incredibly subjective experience, right? It's a biopsychosocial experience. Right, we get really hung up on the bio part of it. We do and forget, we forget about the, the psychosocial. psychosocial. Yeah, and, and you know, again, I see people come into the clinic all of the time with any variety of spinal positions and 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 the same variety of pain up and down the spectrum mm-hmm. where certain things people are unbelievably sensitized to and then i'll see the same thing on someone else and they're like yeah it doesn't hurt mm-hmm. so the that's part of the issue is that we can't we can't call pain the same for everybody because it's not
1: Right. Yeah, and one, one of the things you note is like, if we, if we just put everyone in this kind of mid-range position, like knee over ankle, then that is a less risky place for all knees to be in. But you could argue the opposite, which is that if we don't actually expose the knee to a variety of positions and loads, we create more risk for that knee when inevitably in our lives we have to be in that particular position or sustain that particular load with with our knees so in other words movement preparation strength training for example is a is a really potent way to prepare your body to handle forces and to move with resilience and durability St- strength training is a proven way to reduce the risk of injury it doesn't necessarily prevent injury cuz we don't injury could happen from any given, any time spontaneously. Like you could get injured because someone runs into you or whatever. And like, it's not necessarily going to prevent injury. It's not going to prevent those things from happening, but it is going to reduce the risk. Let's say if someone ran into you, you probably will be able to catch yourself potentially better if you're strong and prevent yourself from falling. And therefore the risk of injury is is reduced. But here's the thing, right? Yoga teachers don't teach strength training. Mm -mm. Yoga teachers don't, progressively overload their students in the same way that you would in a strength training format. And so it's maybe one of those things where we want to use the tool that we've been trained to use. Well, and I think that many yoga teachers, Pilates teachers are excellent actually at teaching alignment. Mm -hmm. And they're they're really good at raising students' awareness in like this mindfulness-based way about where their body is in space and enhancing proprioception in that way. And this has an absolute ton of value. But you cannot alignment someone or align someone out of a strength deficit. You cannot align someone out of a tissue capacity deficit. Now, this isn't to say that you can't build tissue capacity in yoga. You absolutely can. I mean, yoga... Can be a significant load for some people who've been sedentary most of their life or have been you know just not engaging in exercise at all actually like when you come into plank pose having never done plank pose before you're going to feel your muscles working significantly you might only be able to hold that plank for a couple seconds right same thing with the standing poses but eventually we kind of top out we reach a ceiling and our ability to continue to progressively enhance the capacity of our tissues and become more durable and so i think that what happens then is like teachers lean into the thing that they can teach? Of course, yeah, right? And they try to use the tool of alignment in a way that's not really that well designed or it's not designed at all to be used. We cannot align someone out of a strength deficit.
0: And especially in (sighs) yoga, you know, the alignment essentially is an aesthetic. It is not an anatomical requirement, right? If I do let my knee go past 90 degrees, it's not going to explode. If I do let my lower back go into flexion, it too is not going to explode.
1: Right, uh, and I, say, I think there's an aesthetic component too, but I think it goes beyond aesthetics in that, like if I am teaching somebody to align their knee over their toes in Warrior Two rather than over their heel in Warrior 2 I'm exposing that knee to a different load profile, right? And I'm preparing that knee in a very different way than I am if I'm aligning the knee over the heel and not neither one is better or worse than the other. There are different ways of preparing the knee to handle a a particular load. And so we could, we could make the case for, for yoga teachers being like the people who expose people to loads for sure. The difference is not in loading. The the, the difference between strength training and yoga is not in the variety of ways we expose people to loads in terms of position and alignment. It's in how much magnitude of load we're able to expose people to because when we're working with yoga we're working with body weight we're not working with external loads so when you do a malasana which is a deep squat you're only ever squatting your body weight when you do a malasana in strength training you could be squatting hundreds of pounds right so this is this is the, the, where the, di- the difference between the the direction of forces we're exposing the joint to Are different than the magnitude of forces we're exposing the joint
0: to, but I think if you ask an average yoga teacher, what is the purpose of alignment? Like, I don't. I like to tell people that the alignment in yoga is an aesthetic, mostly because they all then look at me and their eyebrows go up because that's a very not. That's not something that they have heard before or necessarily believe. They think provocative. Yeah, thank you. It is provocative, but what they have been led to believe, and this goes back to the like, if your tool is alignment, then every if you're- hammer is a nail. <laughs> no, that's not how that goes, but something like that. If you're
1: a hammer, everything's a nail. Yeah.
0: If you're an alignment specialist, then everything that needs to happen is alignment, right? right. Every so, problem
1: that can be solved
0: can be solved with alignment. by alignment. And I don't have tools like, I'm not in my yoga class being like, okay, let's go get the kettlebells. Like there is no magnitude variation in, in the load. It's all body weight. So all I have at my disposal is alignment. And I think that's why. A lot of maybe yoga and Pilates teachers or other movement-based teachers tend to get into this alignment as safety idea because they don't have anything else to use.
1: Right. And I also want to say that this isn't to take a big shit on like people who teach yoga as like not being this good enough thing to teach. Like not at, not at all. all. Not at all. Not at all. And Yoga delivers benefits that strength training could never. Absolutely and it creates an environment that strength training could never, and it invites a population of people that would never consider stepping foot into a gym, and so it also just has so many other things that it does that strength training could never do. I think what my aim is as an educator and like why I think we create these podcasts is like to help people get out of their own way, you know, it's like if you're a yoga teacher. Get out of your own way and wanna, so that so that the brilliance of what you teach and the brilliance of who you are as a teacher can really more fully shine through. And one of the ways we do that is we stop conflating alignment with safety. Yep. And we talked about this in the pelvis episode. One of the negative outcomes of doing that, of trying to align someone into a safe, quote unquote, safe position is we create fear avoidance mm-hmm. in our students. We, we instill in them this idea that they're actually inherently not safe that movement is dangerous and that there's one or a select few amount of safe positions to be in. And this has been shown, beliefs about pain have been shown to be a predictor of pain. Right. If you believe that your body is fragile or incapable of handling the loads of your life or that movement is dangerous, you're actually more likely to have pain. Mm-hmm. So that that's the psychological component of pain, right? There's also other predictors of pain, which include history of injury. So injury and pain are not the same thing. We have a whole episode about that, right? Your solo episode about
0: pain. I'm trying to remember which episode
1: it is. <laughs> yes. yes. And then also we talk about injury and pain in yoga and strength training in yeah. season two. Yeah. But injury and pain can be connected. And the thing about injuries, that one of the the best ways to predict whether or not someone will have an injury is if they have a history of injury
0: of that injury
1: yeah that injury yeah right so if you have a history of acl tear you're more likely to tear your acl that acl is a ligament of the of the knee um so that's one another one is but what what are your stress levels like like i mean your psychological stress levels like Mm -hmm. how's work going right how's your home life How's your marriage, or your partnership, or your ki- your relationship with your kids, or you? How do you have a, do you have friends where you live? I'm asking for a friend, for me, my friend Laurel. Do you have a social network? Do you have people you can call and talk to? Did did you have do you have financial issues? Like, there's there's so many ways that our environment and our relationships can impact our stress levels and cause us actually to have a higher propensity for pain and injury, and yeah. then also like, how have you been sleeping? Mm-hmm. And finally, there's just like external factors in the environment. Like, was the floor slippery? Right. Did you go from training, you know, playing tennis on clay to playing tennis on a lawn? Or uh, do you prefer to work out in cooler temperatures and now suddenly you have to work out in a really hot environment? Do you feel like the people you're working out with in any given day are kind of sketchy and like they're kind of throwing you off or whatever? Like these are all also factors that can play into how safe we actually are, like how much pain we're going to experience or whether or not we even get injured. Notice that on that list, right, there was nothing about like forward head posture or rounded lower back. All right, Sarah, what are some of the reasons you notice people, you know, they they come to you, they're in your clinic for a reason, typically they have some type of pain or maybe injury or both. What are some of the reasons you've noticed people end up with like maybe some low back, some upper back, some neck pain?
0: think this is a good opportunity for us to actually talk about our six-month progressive overload strength training bone density course. Don't you? Yeah, I do. So our bone density
1: course is a six-month course, and it includes a six-month program within it. It also includes bonus courses like strength training 101 and all about osteoporosis. But the bulk of the content is really
0: the program. And the program is six months because why, Sarah? Because six months is in the research when you are able to start seeing changes to bone density. So if you are going to start doing this kind of progressive overload, no matter what weight you're starting from, you're not going to see any change in your bone density typically until you're past that six-month mark. Right. And so we need at least that amount
1: of time to make a change. It's properly programmed, which means that we start you where you are. So in the beginning, we're gonna be focusing a ton on techniques. So you might be lifting what would be um, more moderate or even lightweight in the beginning for you so that you can really dial in the technique of, of working with a barbell. Now it is a barbell specific program, but that doesn't mean that you can't take a lot of the information we're sharing and apply it to using dumbbells and kettlebells. You certainly can. We just simply believe that a barbell is the best most logical piece of equipment that you would want to become familiar with if you want to be able to progressively overload for life right and so this is the other thing too this is a six-month program but that's not to say that like you are going to ideally lift weights for six months and then stop like this is this is basically us helping you get started over a course of time where you will have ample time to learn how to use weights learn how to strength train learn how to progressively overload learn how to progress toward lifting heavy weights and barbells are the best way to be able to progress for life but then we want you to keep going when this program ends and and we'll give you ways of continuing to use our program to continue going. Right. So it doesn't end at six months. It's, it's
0: something that we can continue to cycle back on and, and use, you know, what? it reminds me of, sorry to break in, but I was just thinking while you were talking about that, it reminds me of like, you know, when you see some, a parent helping a child learn how to ride a bicycle with no training wheels. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I remember this, this is how I learned my dad held onto the back of the bike And I started pedaling and he's running alongside me. Mm -hmm. And at some point he lets go and I kept going. Right. Right, And it's that moment where like, you don't know as the person on like, when did that happen? Right. So in that, in that analogy, in that metaphor analogy story, Laurel and I are like your parent. We're going to hold on to you. (laughs) Is that weird? We're going to hold on to your bike, your metaphorical bike, and we are going to hold your hand the whole way through. And then the our goal is to make ourselves no longer necessary so that you can then continue to work on your strength for the rest of your life the course is called lift for longevity for a reason
1: yeah and and two things that are really important one you you own the course yes. when you buy it so it's yours forever you can always, it'll always live in your computer and then number two is that this course is structured in a way that we have not encountered any other first of all there are no like 6 month programs that are guided with live option and Recorded follow along classes included with it. So, a rude awakening for me when I was going from yoga into the strength training world, and like I wanted to, to get stronger. It's like, oh, I need a program. Okay, I finally got that through my head. I can't, can't just be one off classes all the time. So, then I invested in a program and I got emailed a PDF. I was like, wait, where's the program? Where? Where's the content? Wait, that was Where, literally all you PDF. got. The PDF. So the PDF was linked to videos on Vimeo. So that. So yes, yeah, So you you're like you're like how do I do a bent over row? Oh, let me click over to this one minute demo video on Vimeo, and look, that's that's a that's a fine way to be given a program. The thing is, is that it's it's actually very very different though than how yoga practitioners, and even Pilates te- Pilates teachers are used to being taught movement we're used to going to a class where there's a group of people and being guided step by step through what to do in the class and so I think that it's more yoga slash Pilates teacher friendly to do the course the way we're doing it. We're offering one live class a week. You don't have to attend live. It's all going to be recorded. We're going to ask you to strength train more than one time a week. But we are not only going to provide you with a demo video of every single exercise that you're going to do in the program. We're also going to provide you with a full length class of every single workout in the program. So you will always have the option to just watch a quick demo and work out on your own like the rest of the strength training world is doing, or you will always have the option to take the workouts as though it were kind of like a yoga class or a Pilates class for it to be a guided follow along experience. This, I cannot find anything like this, not to mention the fact that we have a physical therapist. (laughs) Who's that? And a strength coach. Who's that? Teaming up. Who are they? To provide you with this content, it's, it's Sarah and I, you know, we, we have a, a breadth of knowledge and a breadth of expertise and a breadth of qualifications that you also don't always find. Right. So we have something for you. That will give you a taste test of what this program is going to be which is a free webinar and the webinar is just basically a workout the way this workout will work is that you'll show up with whatever equipment you have so if you have barbells great if you just have a broomstick that's also good and maybe if you have a couple dumbbells and kettlebells we're going to take you through the experience of a workout we're also going to do exactly what we're going to do in the course which is leave time at the end of the workout for q a we're also going to do exactly what we're going to do in the course which is provide individuals with form check feedback and take questions. So it's going to be very interactive and basically an exact replica or slash. It's going to be an example of how this program will be for you to take in its longer form. This is a free webinar. You get a 30-day replay. It's happening on September 14th if you want to attend live. If you can't attend live, again, you will get emailed the replay. You'll be able to take the class a couple times, get a feel for what it's going to be like. And then knowing that's the bulk of the content, like you'll be able to make a better decision about whether or not this course is something that you want to invest in. Absolutely. Um, so alternatives to this are obviously like to get one-on-one personal training sessions mm-hmm. which I will never not recommend it's a great idea but in terms of cost sometimes that can be a major valid objection like people just don't have a couple hundred dollars every month lying around to pay their personal trainer and I think that you know that warrants longer discussion if you don't have that type type of money the cost of this longer form course that that we're pro- presenting to you is a fraction of that cost with a lot of this. It's not the same thing as working with a personal trainer, but it has a lot of the same benefits because there's that live real-time personal feedback
0: component to it. So if that's interesting to you, make sure you go to our show notes where you can sign up to get the Zoom link for our webinar that is taking place on September 14th. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it too. I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. And and the other thing is like, if you've been listening to this podcast, this is who Laurel and I are. There's nothing. This is not like, like these people are showing up in that class as well. So just get ready for. <laughs> they'll be there. They'll be, these people will be there.
1: By they we mean we. We'll be there. <laughs> What are some of the reasons you've noticed people end up with like maybe some low back, some upper back, some neck pain?
0: When it's a, when it's a sort of uh, you know chronic non-specific, which is like what a lot of people have when they have their pain. It's been going on forever, but there's no like immediate injury that they're pointing to, or there's you know sometimes people are coming in with something like a herniated disc, but then I have to explain to them that that's actually not why they're having their pain, and that's mm-hmm. a whole other conversation. But you know. It really is this repetitive overuse of a specific position and not enough time in alternate positions, Mm -hmm. not enough strengthening in different ways. And so that's usually what starts it. And then I often also see people who, because they're having pain, they've just locked their body into one shape and they're not moving it. And that is not helping. And in fact, it's hurting.
1: Mm. So in that way, it seems like pain can predict posture. So in other words, like if someone has pain, the pain might actually be causing the posture, not the other way around. We want to go posture causes pain, but actually it looks like maybe pain can cause... 100%. Someone
0: to have a particular posture. Yeah, I had a, a, a patient recently who came in and who was completely, like her rib cage was completely shifted to one side because of the low back pain that she was having on the other side. Like her body literally was like trying to move away from the pain. It was protecting against the pain. It was... Yeah, she was. It was trying to. Right. It wasn't successful. No. But this was the best strategy it had was to put himself in this different posture to try to not be loading the painful side. Hmm. Yeah, I see that often.
1: Do you ever use alignment strategies to help people find some relief from some of the pain they're experiencing, or, or let's say, postural strategies, alignment strategies, or movement? I mean, movement, obviously, yes. Would you say movement quality? Yeah, I would say, It's <laughs> yeah, a loaded
0: term. It is. But I would, no, I, it's more. It's more about preparation. It's more about, not like I'm going to put you in this one alignment and this is the one where you're going to feel better and yeah. you should always live here, right? Because I think listeners, you understand at this point that that's not what Laurel <laughs> and I are about. But I do, I use movement and I use a variety of movement and, and different positions as a way to relieve their pain for sure
1: yeah again you know alignment can be a really effective tool for varying the load for preparing someone for movement for giving them strategies to move differently and maybe that's going to enhance their skill in movement it's also impossible i think to get someone to do a pose in yoga if they've never done yoga before without teaching some alignment so just coming back to this idea that like alignment is not a Dirty word. <laughs> Not at all. And when
0: I'm starting to like a lot of my patients, as they're getting you know towards the end of the rehab phase of their treatment and we're starting to move into more like, okay, now i'm I'm training you, it's like I, i'm I'm taking the the kitty wheels off and I'm teaching you to ride a bicycle. I don't know why I'm using that example, but mm-hmm. what I mean is like a lot like I use a barbell as a, you know, now we have progressed enough for you to use a barbell kind of a mm-hmm. tool. And when I'm teaching barbell, I'm teaching alignment Mm -hmm. because the load itself that I work with for them is, you know, I use the technique bar, it's 15 pounds. And I I reiterate to them, this doesn't matter right now while the load is quite light, but learn the alignment now Mm -hmm. so that you have it when the load is a lot heavier Mm -hmm. and it's going to make a huge difference if your feet are two inches behind the bar versus if your feet are under the bar.
1: Absolutely. And also, I mean... Couple things about that. If that's the deadlift example, right? Yeah. Is if you set up with your your midfoot under the bar, you're probably going to have better leverage. Not only does that help prepare them for, you know, maybe uh, more, let's say, comfort in deadlifting down the road when the loads get heavier. It's going to allow them to lift heavier. Yeah. It's going to allow their muscles to be able to produce more force, which is going to enhance their strength. It's a it's a more effective way to get stronger to set up well, but also in the squat. A lot of times you might hear, and this relates to low back posture and dogma about the squat. You'll hear instructors insisting that people need to have a perfect body weight squat mm. before they add any amount of load, because again, there's this there's this connection they're making erroneously in their mind between posture and future injury. Right? They're saying like if your body weight squat posture is not just so you are at greater risk of injury when we put load on you. And I know that like just a couple of minutes ago, I said that when load and rate of, rate of loading and when magnitude of load increase, like alignment matters more, but here's the deal. Someone is not going to squat with the same posture or slash like movement quality or alignment with body weight as they are when they're holding onto a weight. And where you hold on to the weight is going to have a huge impact on what your squat looks like. So mm-hmm. if you've got a weight held in front of your body, it's going to look different than if you have the barbell on your back. It's going to look differently if you are holding on to two kettlebells, like suitcases and, and like your feet are up on blocks. I mean, it's going to totally change the way that your body looks while it's squatting because the load is a self-organizing tool. It's going to help your body figure out where it needs to be reflexively without a whole lot
0: of thinking yeah. or cueing from the teacher. If that was the case, I would not be able to squat any amount of weight because my body weight squat when I get all the way down is very rounded in the spine mm-hmm. and oh no right I better extend the spine oh but if I do that I fall over backwards right. what am I gonna do right oh it's my ankle dorsiflexion that I have to work on well it turns out I'm at the end of my ankle dorsiflexion <laughs> I'm still falling over backwards but the second I hold onto something as little as like twenty pounds mm-hmm. the whole thing organizes itself right. completely so. Yeah. I decided not to spend a lot of time working on perfecting my body weight squat. Instead, I just started lifting heavier. Nice. And uh, now I can lift pretty heavy.
1: I was going to say, too, my ankle dorsiflexion was limited when I started lifting. And then as I've gotten to be able to lift and squat heavier and heavier, my ankle dorsiflexion is so much better. Yeah,
0: what a shocker. As I put more weight on top of my ankle dorsiflexion, I get more ankle dorsiflexion. (laughs) I don't believe it.
1: It's amazing. All right, so we're in service of not getting too dogmatic about not being dogmatic about alignment, Um, we're going to use a a five-question process of inquiry. We're probably not going to go like point by point through all five questions. But in the beginning, just to read these five questions off to you, this is what we're kind of using as our way of kind of reasoning our way through like why certain types of beliefs about alignment are potentially dogmatic, meaning they're lacking in evidence. Um, So here are the five questions that we'll ask about, quote unquote, this dogmatic alignment. Number one, first of all, we wanna give everyone total benefit of the doubt. And so we're gonna ask, what is the purported goal of aligning the spine in this way that we are calling dogmatic? So what is it trying to achieve slash fix slash avoid? Okay, question number two, does aligning the spine in this way actually achieve that goal? And if it doesn't, does it actually, you know, conversely, does it interfere with the goal? Question number three, if it achieves or interferes, either one, let's talk about why. Why? And then number four, if it interferes with the goal, if it actually creates an additional obstacle, it, are there circumstances where it, it could also, in some cases, be helpful? So if it maybe creates an obstacle for most people, are there exceptions to the rule? Are there some people who would benefit from aligning their spine in this way? And if so, who and under what circumstance, that's the fifth question. Okay, so we're not gonna like painstakingly answer each question that would get kind of boring and tedious, but this is, this is how I would like to inquire into alignment dogma. Um, I don't wanna make like bold, like hyper certain declarative statements around why certain ways of aligning the spine are dogmatic because honestly, that's not a very scientific way of looking at things, right? Mm. Science is really not interested in making bold, confident declarative statements about
0: things. Science is interested in making very wishy washy, <laughs> very couched in a lot of potentialies and maybes and more studies are needed. That is a that is what science likes to do. Science lives in uncertainty. It sure does. I think yeah. that's why people don't like
1: it. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. It's really way easier to latch onto a story. Totally. And uh, you and know, like, and of one, right? Sample size, one person's story is especially if it's compelling and emotional. It's much more dispassionate and boring to look at. The evidence from a large population of people that have been studied over maybe the course of many years. Okay. So this is what we're up against here. It's actually really counterintuitive to think scientifically. It's much
0: easier to think like a human. Sure.
1: (laughs) We're going to try to think about thinking.
0: But this is also like, I mean, just to break in for a second, this is a big part of what I learned in PT school Mm -hmm. was how to think scientifically. Mm -hmm. And it really did change the way that I think. Like when I, I hear a declarative statement and Immediately, I my brain comes up with like a series of questions about why I think it's wrong. You're skeptical. Yeah. Oh. I think it's good to live in that skeptical place. Yeah. You can also be there a little too
1: much. You can overdo often. it. So let's start with the lower back and the alignment dogma that is probably the most famous alignment dogma of all, which is that you shouldn't flex your lower back. In some cases, this alignment dogma is used in every circumstance, like ever, like never flex your back. Even when you're sitting at your desk, you should sit up straight. To, you know, situations where, yeah, okay, you're deadlifting a heavy weight. You should not flex your spine. You should you should not do a Jefferson curl, for example. A Jefferson curl is kind of like a really rounded back version of a deadlift where you roll down your spine holding onto a weight. It's a kettlebell, barbell, whatever it is. Like a lot of people get really concerned about the Jefferson curl. It's like, oh no, you're flexing your spine under load. No, no. That's dangerous. No, no. This is the dogma we're discussing. So let's actually start with daily activities or activities of daily living ADLs right mm-hmm. what do we often hear cautioned around spinal flexion in daily life activities like what is
0: what is what is something that's kind of like don't careful yeah don't lift with your back right mm-hmm. and that means like don't round your back really and it's like all of those pictures that you see a, like and an the, x and the person rounding the back and then they're like check mark and they're doing a big old squat and their spine is straight and they're able to Pick the thing up. Mm. That's yeah. Don't round your back. And then also, what you just said about like just posture generally. Like, don't sit with a slumpy, slumpy spine, which is usually spinal flexion of like right. your whole spine, not just your lumbar spine.
1: Right. So these are two different examples. One is really low load. You're not even standing. You're sitting, and your run- your back is rounding. Yeah. And that that is sometimes people say that that could be harmful to your low back health or maybe- yeah neck health or whatever it is, and then the other one is actually lifting an external load, like a box. Okay. Um, in yoga, oftentimes, lumbar flexion is cautioned against in forward bends, mm-hmm. obviously, so because you know, like in a pose like Paschimottanasana, where you're sitting on the ground with your legs straight out in front of you, it's a big hamstring stretch, mm-hmm. big back of the body stretch. I was taught to cue people into as much hip flexion as possible without letting the spine round. And then at the very end, it's okay. It's maybe okay to let the spine round, okay? And so the idea was sometimes like, oh, we want to actually maximize hip flexion and, and really get the hamstring stretch. Kind of at the forefront of this experience, and in and, and that way, I kind of agree. Like, yeah, let's try not to flex the back first. Let's flex the hips first and kind of maximize that range of motion at the hips and then let the spine round. But a lot of times also this this alignment dogma was presented as a way to keep the lower back safe. Right. And then also in Uttanasana, Paschimottanasana, or I already said that one, Prasarita padottanasana, any type of forward bend, Parzvottanasana. So um, what about in uh, strength training? Where do you see lumbar flexion showing up as like
0: a big no-no in strength training. Well, like you said, with like the, the Jefferson curl, people mm-hmm. don't like that. There's a lot of, you know, well, in theory, your deadlift is your spine is staying
1: neutral. Some people think extended. it should be
0: neutral. Right.
1: Not flexed. Right. We're going to talk about that. Right. Um, the dreaded butt wink, butt wink is also a lumbar
0: flexion we activity. We talked about that in the
1: pelvis one where the pelvis posteriorly tilts at the bottom of the squat and that pulls the back and the lower back flexion. What about Pilates? Is it is it something that's fear mongered in pl- Pilates? what's actually
0: What's actually interesting is in Pilates they love it they oh, love a more flexion in nice. Pilates yeah okay. they love it they'll there's in mat Pilates in reform Pilates there's movement in both directions they'll do lots they'll do really big spinal extension moves but they'll also do full on spinal flexion in all kinds of positions sitting down in you know what would be sort of the equivalent of like a shoulder standy type shape. Mm-hmm. Um, Meanwhile, nobody in Plow ever told me like make sure your spine is straight when you you know anyway, uh yeah there's <laughs> there's tons of spinal flexion in in Pilates they're all about it.
1: Oh yeah, Plow pose in yoga. Yeah, is Plow pose a Pilates move?
0: No, no, no. But I was just there is a there's a move on the reformer oh, uh, it's called short like spine w- that involves Plow ish type I shapes. I see. Okay. And. Uh, and actually rolling down out of it really, really slowly on purpose yeah. with a ton of lumbar flexion.
1: Yeah. You know what? I This is making me remember that when I, when I did a couple of Matt Pilates classes as like when I was in the peak of the heat of my like must practice yoga six days a week, like a lot, mm-hmm. and also teacher train, and also teach classes, and my body was in pain. I would take a mat Pilates class and feel so much better afterwards. And I'm like, oh, maybe it's because they were asking me to flex my spine. <laughs> maybe it was. Maybe it was. So I want to, I want to just say for a second, like, kind of go back to this idea of like correlation causation. It's possible for people to have pain when they simultaneously are also lifting a lot of boxes.
0: Mm-hmm. It's,
1: it's, it's possible to have low back pain after a bout of lifting a lot of heavy boxes. Totally. It's possible to have low back pain after a bout of sitting with a slouched posture, it's possible to have low back pain after doing a lot of forward bends and yoga, it's possible to have low back pain after hinging, squatting, doing a Jefferson curl. Mm-hmm. These two things can happen concurrently, one, no, the movement, the exercise can happen before the other, the back pain. It doesn't necessarily mean that the movement caused the back pain, it could have though, mm-hmm. I guess what we're trying to separate out here, is it the lumbar flexion inherently as a way the spine can move that caused the pain or was it potentially these other things? Lack of variability, history of injury, history of chronic low back pain. Could it be movement preparation related? Did you do? Did you go from never doing yoga and then sign up for two weeks for twenty dollars at your local studio and start doing yoga, the Ashtanga Primary Series, which is all forward bends, five days a week? Or how's like how's your marriage? How's your financial situation? How's your job? Right? You you kind of know where I'm going here, right? Like I'm going through all the lists of questions we could ask ourselves that would maybe help us get more accurately to the heart of why someone has lower back pain. But instead what, get, what happens is people go, don't flex your lower back, that causes back pain. Here's the other thing I wanna break in with. Where did, this come, where did this idea come from is what I wanna talk about, but break in.
0: Thank you. I, I'm gonna real quick break in, which is also our idea of any pain being a problem. Pain is, you know, I uh, the interview that I did with Dr. Chris Rayner last season was r- a lot about pain and it was really awesome. Mm-hmm. And one of the phrases I got from him that I now use all the time is that pain is a low level language. Mm-hmm. So maybe you lifted a bunch of boxes and your back hurt the next day. Mm-hmm. What that back pain the next day is telling you is, I was not ready for that. Mm. That's it. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little upset because I wasn't ready. hmm didn't prepare me enough. Mm-hmm. And now I'm having a bit of a fit about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you injured yourself. Right. You should never flex your spine. Mm-hmm. You know, any of those things. Right. In his world, any pain lower than a six is fine, which is a really high number on the pain scale mm-hmm. to be fine with. Mm-hmm. And it always makes me laugh when people are like, well, I felt that. And I'll be like, well, you know, where? What number? And they're like, Two. I'm like, you're fine. And like, really?
1: And yeah. I would, I would, I would also maybe ask in this case, like, it's not that he's being, it's not that he's not being compassionate. Of course saying like, oh, whatever, you're fine in that, like, stop having your experience, right. your experience doesn't matter. It's more like, you don't need to catastrophize this exactly. or even intervene in some really special, specific, or God forbid, expensive way, because this will.
0: This will go away. This This, will go away. Your relationship to this is what he's talking about, not the this itself. This psychosocial relationship
1: to pain, which by the way is another predictor of pain, right? right? If we have fragilistic ideas about what our body can and cannot handle Mm -hmm. and we ascribe meaning to pain that isn't really shown to be true, like, oh, my back hurts, I must have blown out, my disc must have exploded or whatever, like all the terrible language that's used in the medical community. You slipped a disc. Your your disc is uh, hurt. What what are the scary
0: words? Well, people say things like, I threw my back out. I
1: threw my back out. I slipped a disc. It's terrible. Slipped a disc is like, terrible.
0: Yeah, where'd it go? <laughs> like, I slipped on a banana peel and my disc like a slipped hockey, out of my back.
1: A hockey puck. It just like slid under the S- bed. Um, so, but yes, pain is a low-level language. It's telling us something, but it yeah. doesn't tell us exactly why it's there. Right. Right. It doesn't even tell us how
0: serious the issue is. Not necessarily, no.
1: People take lumbar flexion and go, because lumbar flexion was somehow a part of the picture of when I started having lower back pain, they kind of pick it out of everything. Like they don't, they don't look at how long they slept. They don't like really necessarily examine all their personal relationships or even stop to think about their past history of injury or like whether or not they were prepared to do the thing. They go, no, it was because I was flexing my lower back. Why do people think lower back flexion is the cause of lower back pain?
0: Well, I think part of why it gets so demonized is related to actual disc herniation because the generally accepted story is that if you flex your spine too much, you're going to get a disc herniation. Most disc herniations happen posteriorly and laterally, right, so somewhere in that sort of back part of the spine. Uh does that mean that flexion caused those disc herniations though? It it will have been related to it in some way, but it's also not necessarily like I probably have a herniated disc in my low back, at least one if not more. You probably do as well, but I don't have any pain. Right? So it's this whole idea of the it's like being able to point to the disc herniation on an MRI and say that's why you're having your pain and you're having your pain because you sit in front of a computer da da da. So we're going to improve your posture and that's going to take away your pain. And that doesn't end up being true pretty much ever. Right.
1: You can have a herniation without pain. You can have pain without a herniation. And I think I I heard something where like 20% of 20-year-olds have degenerative disc disease. Oh, I believe it. Um, 30% of 30-year-olds. 40% of 40-year-olds. Right? 50% of 50-year-olds. And then I think it's like something like ninety percent of eighty-year-olds or whatever. Like, like the, the, there's a higher likelihood that you're going to have some type of thing going on with a disc the older you get. But like or something, 20% of twenty percent of twenty-year-olds. Right, like that's one in five. Yeah, and they, they probably can don't have pain with zero symptoms. Right. Okay, we got to talk about Doctor Stuart McGill. Who's that? Okay,
0: I think you know. I do know. <laughs> I do know. <laughs>
1: okay, Doctor Stuart McGill is a very famous, well-respected foremost researcher on the lower back and has done research looking at spinal flexion and its role in disc herniation. This research was uh, super influential. Again, many see him as an authority on keeping the spine safe, um, specifically with activities that would like put you in a position where you're going to be maybe flexing your spine like lifting weights um even yoga like he's actually i think partnered with bernie clark and done like Mm. a course with bernie clark like he's he's someone who's well known across like multiple different movement worlds and he unfortunately i think the conclusions drawn from his research whether or not we can like hold him accountable or the people who interpret his research account who knows you know so he did research on pig spines Okay, now, when, when when people hear that, they're immediately probably going to feel bad for the pigs. The pigs were dead. Oh. Which is actually the bigger problem. Because mm. you can do research on animal bone. You can do research on animal structures and get like, a pretty good idea of how it would be for humans. And the reason you can research animals is because there are not the same ethical considerations made for animals as humans, for better or for worse. Uh, I think the more important... Limitation about the research McGill did was that these were deceased. They were dead pig spines, as Mm -hmm. I will now refer to them. DPS, dead pig spines. (laughs) Is that another t shirt? (laughs) Dead pig spines. So, what did he do? He took some dead pig spines. Oh boy. And he moved them through, I think it was like something like 80,000 plus continuous cycles of lumbar flexion. Uh Research can be super ridiculous in this way. Like it will take something to its maximum to figure out the breaking point to then be able to kind of pull back from that breaking point and go, okay, what can we reasonably extrapolate about the outcome of this Mm -hmm. to humans in like a real life scenario. So it's it's all kind of extrapolated out. But let me repeat, this is a pig spine that's dead they did 80,000 plus continuous cycles of spinal flexion and noticed that some discs herniated. My question is, Sarah, what do yes. you see as being potentially problematic about over-predicting the results of this and like basically taking what happened to dead pig spines and predicting what will
0: then happen to human spines? Well, there's a couple of problems, Laurel. <laughs> uh, problem number one, this the pigs were dead. Dead tissue does not behave the same as alive tissue.
1: No. What is the biggest difference between the way a dead tissue behaves
0: versus an alive tissue? It does not change in any way in response to what's happening, except it degenerates under the 80,000, did you say, repetitions? More
1: than 80,000.
0: So, and also, so, of course, it's going to break down because what organic material wouldn't break down after 80,000 repetitions or
1: inorganic in fact like a dead sure. a dead organic material i think probably behaves more like inorganic material Yeah, that, and in this way like it is maybe more
0: like a machine not an animated no object. more animus so yeah that's part of the problem it can't adapt the other it can't adapt the other part of the problem is in no world is anyone doing 80,000 spinal flexions in a row no so yeah you might do 80,000
1: spinal flexions in a year yeah. And there're going to be many bouts of rest breaking up those sets. Sure. Maybe of the movement in right. question. And during those periods of rest, what's happening is that the tissues affected by the movement are are probably remodeling to mm-hmm. some extent yep. and potentially getting better at handling those stresses. Yep. That's not happening with Any dead spines, pigs, humans, it's not happening. Nope. But then what happened with this research is Mm -hmm. that people took it to mean that lumbar flexion was dangerous.
0: Nobody should ever do it.
1: Now, this research, I think, was done in the 80s. There's been a lot more research since then. People are still kind of stuck in the McGill model, though, and they think that this is like the current working model. though. Right. That people are using to like figure out what are like good and bad or safe and unsafe ways to to, to move. Mm-hmm. A lot of more recent evidence has shown that there is actually really poor correlation between lumbar flexion and these things happening yeah. that we want to avoid. Right.
0: I still have <laughs> on a semi-regular basis. I see a lot of people who come into the clinic with low back pain. It's a very common thing to people for people to come to PT with and. Some of those people will tell me when I'm talking about like their history and everything, they'll be like, well, and then I did the McGill method for X amount of time and that really helped. And then in my head, I'm like, well, if it really helped, you wouldn't be here. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it's not, it's not, but, and again, I'm like, I'm not here to like trash talk this person's work or this, you know, I don't know enough about the method, but it's, it's can, essentially. Can you, can
1: you back up? So he actually had, has a method. So he's done research. Yes. Showing. Not not very well that there's a relationship right. between lumbar flexion and disc herniation or injury. Yeah. Okay. And the, but the also has a method. Right. So tell us about that.
0: The as and I don't know a ton about it, but my understanding is it's mostly extension based. I think there's no flexion movements anywhere in it. I do remember I'm like casting my brain back to PT school when we learn mobilization techniques. We learned how to do these like. They're called PAs because it's just shorthand for posterior to anterior uh, mobilizations of the spinal joints. And in th- the theory was like, if you do PAs on somebody's low back, that's in the same conceptual direction as like having them do extension or even while they're doing extension that you are going to get the disc to go back into where it was. <laughs> and I don't know <laughs> if that's true in terms of like, is that a thing you can even do? But bigger picture, my understanding of his work is that it's a lot of spinal extension-based exercises.
1: Is, is is his theory that like these exercises are going to push your discs back?
0: I case? don't know. Okay. I don't want to say that for sure, but...
1: What do we know about exercise and low back pain?
0: Any exercise is better than no exercise. Is,
1: are some exercises more effective than others? No. Okay. Right.
0: So, if... If you were having pain in your back and you stumbled across McGill, like you Googled low back pain help and McGill's thing was the first thing that came up or you were like, oh, this looks good. And you started doing it and your back stopped hurting. That's awesome. That's great. End of story. He also
1: did some research on gluteal amnesia if you heard of that oh I've even talked about it
0: okay as you if it was a thing me
1: too I, I would get a lot of laughs out of my my groups yeah when I taught group group yoga so I kept I kept talking about gluteal amnesia I was like oh this is this is really positive feedback
0: yeah I'm just gonna keep people saying. think I'm hilarious <laughs> I'm gonna keep, keep talking about how yeah. their butts asleep yeah and
1: of course I was teaching like bridge poses and sure resistance bands and yeah. yeah yeah it's not a thing though
0: it's not a thing I mean the thing about this idea of gluteal amnesia if you see someone who really does not have any control of a muscle, like they've had some, like a spinal cord injury or a stroke, then fair. But if you walked into the clinic, your butt is doing something. Right. If you dragged yourself by your arms into the clinic, then I would say yes.
1: Yeah. So this study, it was called Arthrogenic Neuromusculature Inhibition. Can you translate that for yes. us muggles?
0: <laughs> so essentially, this this study is this idea of arthrogenic neuromuscular inhibition is the idea that if there's an issue at a joint, like inside the joint, it's going to impact the neuromuscular ability of the muscles around it.
1: Okay, and so it's arthrogenic that neuromusculature. Means hip. Yep, arthrogenic neuromusculature. Sorry, arthrogenic. Neuromus- I'm going to interrupt
0: you. To come Jesus. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> arthrogenic neuromusculature inhibition colon. A foundational investigation of existence in the hip joint. So we're looking for, we're investigating the existence of inhibition on the neuromuscular level of joints. So what did they do? They took some fluid and they pumped it into the joint. And the joint stopped working that well. Why did they pump fluid into the joint? They're like recreating... (sighs)
0: Uh, yeah, sorry. I'm just sighing because I'm frustrated. They're yes.
1: recreating
0: inflammatory
1: yes, process conditions. They're they're
0: trying to make the joint more uncomfortable to move, essentially. Mm-hmm.
1: And they and they so again, their ta- research kind of takes things to a ridiculous level to provoke something like to 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 show that like something even when, you know, we have to take it to this ridiculous level can indeed cause this thing to happen. That's fine, okay? Sure. It's fine to know that. It's good to know that. But what's not fine is then when we Overinterpret the results of this study to say that the reason people have lower back pain is because they have
0: cudial amnesia. Right. Where did that come from? uh, How do we get there? How do we get anywhere? It's, you know, there's the game of telephone about research among, I'm sorry to say this, but non-clinicians is a lot. Mm -hmm. This study is basically saying if your hip hurts, your glutes aren't going to work so well. But people have taken that and flipped it and said, the reason why you're having pain is because your glutes aren't working, yeah. right? But so that's not what the study found.
1: It's, sim- it's similar to that idea of like posture doesn't predict pain, but right. pain might explain posture. Exactly.
0: And so also yeah. we're here, out here talking about like, oh, you sit too much, you have gluteal amnesia, but though none of, not necessarily involving any pain experience or joint degeneration,
1: We're pathologizing normal. Mm -hmm. My favorite is sitting is the new smoking. I'm like, oh, hell no.
0: You know what is the new smoking? What? Smoking. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome.
1: Uh, So here's the kicker. Here's where it kind of, we're bringing in that like epistemology piece of like the study of how we know what we know. It's like even while we're trying to avoid spinal flexion, it's happening. What? It's happening a lot. What? They looked at the exercise called the good morning. Can you... Tell us what this exercise is, A strength training exercise. Yes.
0: Uh, good morning is essentially a hip hinge with weight. And you're holding the weight, maybe a barbell across your shoulders or maybe a kettlebell into your chest, and you're tr- attempting to do hip flexion movement only
1: yeah you're trying to keep your spine neutral the uh researchers looked at the good morning to see like okay are people actually able to maintain a neutral lumbar spine and they found they weren't can you r- guess, r- can you guess how flex these people's spines were
0: i mean it's gonna be more than i think but yeah no
1: well, It was like 26 degrees of flexion do you know what like what is the total amount of flexion this, the lumbar spine can
0: do? Something I think it's like 40? Like 60? 60 maybe. 60. I, that's, I don't remember. Okay,
1: so that's like not a little bit flexed. No. Okay. I
0: mean, regardless of how much it can do, it's not a little bit flexed. It's not a little bit flexed. And that, when you look at somebody who has maybe
1: lots of experience doing the good morning and has what people would call like really good form, And they're doing the good morning and you think their lumbar spine is neutral it's not Mm. it's flexed it's wild it's so wild i love it okay so if we're going to take this alignment dogma of Mm -hmm. it's really kind of like an anti-alignment dogma it's like don't flex your spine Mm -hmm. which is like it's a it's an avoidance cue yeah right
0: yeah
1: or just this dogmatic belief that lumbar flexion is dangerous Mm -hmm. if we give people the total benefit of the doubt Okay, we're going to engage in that five-step process of inquiry. Okay. And we go, what is the purported goal of avoiding spinal flexion? What is it trying to fix or avoid? What would you say?
0: The purported goal is that avoiding spinal flexion is how to avoid injury and pain.
1: Okay. And then question number two, does aligning in this way or not aligning, right, in that way achieve that goal? No. Okay and if, if that's the case if no is the answer does it interfere with that goal of keeping potentially all of our spine
0: spine? yeah how because you're if you're not allowing your spine to move all the way it's supposed to move you know what happens
1: what do we gain <laughs> what do we gain specifically for the discs when we allow our spine to flex like what happens to the discs they get squeezed thank you and the the discs are largely vascular so squeezing the discs through movement is one of the ways that the disc actually gets to Get rid of waste products inside of the disc and get fresh nutrients into the disc if we're avoiding spinal flexion we're missing that whole way of squeezing the discs and nourishing the discs but then also like if we're avoiding spinal flexion because we feel like our back can't handle flexing this is an example of fear avoidance or like maybe possibly harmful beliefs about our body and pain that could potentially make our pain worse okay if the goal is achieved or if the goal is not achieved by avoiding spinal flexion. We've, we've determined that it's not achieved. We just answered why. Basically, the disc doesn't get to be squeezed in all the ways it should be squeezed. Also like other tissues aren't stimulated in the same way, maybe we also develop fear avoidance. Um, however, given this question number four, could it still be helpful for some people in some circumstances
0: to avoid spinal flexion ever? Yeah, some people in some circumstances, sure. But those are very specific people in specific circumstances, and it's not the majority of people.
1: It's probably not within a movement teacher's scope of practice to be advising these people to avoid spinal flexion. However, they might take the advice of that person, their student's doctor, mm-hmm. and craft a class that avoids spinal flexion. That's cool. Totally. So we can move on to talk about spinal Extension specifically at the lumbar spine. Okay. And I think this one, it deserves a little attention. Sure. Won't get as much as flexion. Anterior tilt, often blamed for low back pain. This relates to spinal extension. But I was taught in my yoga teacher training that when we do backbends, we should minimize lumbar extension. And so there was a lot of emphasis on tucking the tailbone. Mm. So tucking the tailbone, make sure that you can comb the flesh of your buttocks Uh away from your lower back to minimize arching or crunching the word was often right. crunching of the lower compressing. back compressing compressing of the lower back mm-hmm. okay and so yeah I, I i thought yeah that makes sense we don't want people arching their lower back it's going to it's going to cause lower back pain and a lot of people would do backbends and have lower back pain i mean i've definitely had like lower back pain after big backbending mm-hmm. practices and not really pain necessarily it's just like soreness, soreness and it goes away after a couple of days mm-hmm. um, If we were to give the benefit of the doubt of this cue to, like, avoid lumbar extension and backbends, right? We could say, well, with total benefit of the doubt, what is the purported goal of not extending the lower back and backbends? The purported goal is?
0: Not hurting your back?
1: Okay, it's trying to avoid lower back pain.
0: Does it achieve this? (laughs) (laughs) Well, but here's also the other thing that I've been thinking about when you've been talking about this this whole time is, the other cue about back bends which is like relax your glutes oh. right so i can't i have to use my glutes if i'm going to create this tail tuck posterior tilt to pre- quote unquote protect my back but then i'm also supposed to turn it off supposedly yeah i don't get it
1: now it it it's really confusing because then some people will get really on the like engage your glutes train where it's all about glutes engaging engage your glutes more 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 more, more to protect your lower back yeah one is asking for more posterior tilt the glute engagement one is actually relaxing one of the primary muscles of the posterior trill, which is relax your glutes. I think what we can do is go back to that checklist of like, what are some good predictors of pain, right? So maybe history of back pain, preparation, mm-hmm. movement preparation. Was someone prepared for this, this amount of backbending that right. you had them do? Is this their first time doing urdhva dhanurasana wheel pose? Um, we could also ask like, what was the environment like in your classroom? Did they feel like you were being a little bit insistent or domineering or there's a number of ways in which we could say that tucking the tucking the pelvis or posteriorly tilting the pelvis in a backbend will not decrease someone's sensitivity low back pain sensitivity in backbends but i think there's there's an argument too to say like if someone hasn't been engaging their glutes hasn't has been super anteriorly tilted in a backbend maybe posteriorly tilting the pelvis is going to allow some other Segment of their spine or some other region of their spine to extend more. And maybe that's going to take some of the load off their lower back in some way. So I think it's a case by case scenario. Sure. Um, I think it interferes with the goal of keeping people feeling good in their body or feeling safe in their body when we make this connection between like lumbar extension and risk of injury or pain because you're creating this fear avoidance. Um, And I also think that there like I said, there are some potential reasons to cue tucking the tailbone for some people some of the time, right? I know that it's kind of funny, like my whole history with backbending was that in the beginning, I found posterior pelvic tilt helped me have a better experience in backbends. But Mm -hmm. then the longer I practiced yoga, I found that that tendency or that habit of constantly tucking my tailbone in a backbend started to not feel great. And then I went to some classes where teachers were like, telling me to deliberately anteriorly tilt my pelvis and arch my lower back sequentially like before lifting up into Urdhva mm. and before doing bridge pose. And I was like, my mind was blown because my experience was so much better, like I felt so much better in the back then, but I was like, wait a second, I'm really arching my lower back a lot. So it created a little cognitive dissonance. Sure. And now I think I understand why that happened, right? So in one case, tucking my tailbone in the beginning of my yoga journey was a novel movement. It exposed my body to novel loads that it really maybe liked experiencing because I, too, am an anteriorly tilted individual. Hmm. But then I did that for six years straight, fastidiously, hypervigilantly.
0: Right? Probably I, I had fear in, avoidance around lumbar extension, and I would say probably you were tucking your pelvis at other times that had nothing to do with backbends. All the time, right? Just walking around, <laughs> always be
1: contracting, stopping sticking my butt out. Yeah, and uh, and I had the opposite experience because again variability, variety is the spice of life. That's right. So and then and then I started doing bridge pose and backbends and just like articulating my pelvis through both, like moving my pelvis yeah. anteriorly and posteriorly, tilting my pelvis. Fun, and uh, that felt even better, right? Sure. So, so it, it's, uh, you know, it's it's not about one position being the safe or right way, I think is what is coming, hopefully coming through in this conversation. Um, also, I will say you can't align someone out of a strength deficit. So another big reason I think I had low back pain and back bends is I just wasn't strong enough right. in my upper body and maybe in other areas like my back strength was not strong enough to support the position and no amount of Pelvic cueing, right. alignment cueing around what to do with my lower back was going to help that.
0: Well, because it was maybe had nothing to do with your lower back. It had to do with
1: the capacity, right? Right. That I that I had not been training right. to sustain those positions. Sarah, upper back. Yes. Let's move away from the lower back. Okay. Have you heard of the term hyperkyphosis, used to describe people with maybe more rounded upper backs?
0: Uh. I'm trying to think if I've heard of that exact term. I've heard kyphosis used as a negative term. Oh, yeah. Like they have thoracic kyphosis, like okay. that, that the the actual natural position is in itself a pathology.
1: Yeah, okay, pathologizing normal. I've heard hyperkyphosis in that, like, that's sort of acknowledging that kyphosis is the norm right. for the upper back, but and then, then like, saying, like, now you have too much, too much. Too much. So maybe it's more of a too rounded of an upper back or maybe sometimes you could call that like a hunchback or like yeah. a slouched slouch slouched. Um, how is this different how is hyperkyphosis then different from a flex thoracic spine or how how is kyphosis if you don't if you don't want to talk to you know hyperkyphosis as a, as a thing that exists in the world how is kyphosis different from a flex thoracic spine is there a difference
0: your kyphosis is how your bones are aligned when you're not actively doing anything Mm -hmm. right if you're just standing or sitting or whatever Mm -hmm. there's just a shape that your spine is going to adapt that is not a pathology Mm -hmm. versus if i think about flexing my spine my upper back spine then i'm actually going into the movement of flexion right but sometimes people will use those terms interchangeably Mm -hmm. like a flexed spine is used to describe a posture like posture in the term, not in the term of like a pose, but in the term of like the resting position of your spine.
1: Yeah. Uh, I've noticed that a rounded upper back is often demonized mm-hmm. as like a way that you don't want your upper back to be. Right. And I noticed this a lot in just like standing positions like Tadasana. Someone has a, kind of a rounded upper back, maybe in plank pose. Mm-hmm maybe um a rounded upper back is blamed as being the reason why someone has low back pain and back bending and there could be some truth to that right like if someone just has difficulty accessing thoracic extension it might be that the lower back has to do a little too much of that to do to do the the pose bridge or or nana um sometimes Mm -hmm. in baby cobra for example right uh people people will try to speak Uh, uh, will try to cue their students out of this rounded upper back position. And so I'm wondering, can we definitively say that someone's hyperkyphosis or overly rounded upper back, posturally speaking, is to blame for some of the pain they might be experiencing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about a patient of mine who is now deadlifting a barbell, and she's in her 70s, late Mm -hmm. 70s. Posturally, she has an excess of what we would consider maybe an excess of kyphosis. Okay. She has quite a rounded upper back. Yep. We've done tons of work on the alignment and form of a deadlift with a barbell. Mm -hmm. She can activate her spinal extensors the amount that she needs to to do the deadlift. No kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Turns out you can activate them even if your spine is in a position that's not moving into that position. Right. And she's fine, Mm -hmm. right? So. You know, I, I, we, we do tend to demonize this kyphosis. I've recently discovered that I have something called pectus, what is it? Pectus excavatum. <laughs> and, you know, it's a thing. Uh, and it turns out it's related to being hypermobile. What is pectus excavatum? It's basically when your sternum kind of caves in a little bit. Oh, yeah. Bit.
1: I, I, yes. I've seen yeah. that
0: before. And mine doesn't do it a ton, but it does it some. And I've often sort of looked at my back in various poses in yoga and been like, wow, my upper back is like super rounded. Hmm. I don't like that, Mm. right? But what I have discovered is like, well, yeah, it's rounded because the front is excavated, (laughs) right? Amazing. Uh, And then that is related to a system-wide condition of my body. I have Mm -hmm. benign hypermobility, which means I just don't have like EDS or any of the pots, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm just super bendy. Mm -hmm. But it does then impact other structures in your body, right? But that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with any of these structures. They're perfectly fine. And they're able to support a heavy squat and a heavy deadlift. So, what's the matter with that?
1: Yeah. Also, like when you're looking at someone in some in a pose like cobra or baby cobra, it's really deceptive what you're seeing in the upper back because we we've established that like the norm is probably to have a little kyphosis, which is that hill shape from from the back. And you watch someone do baby cobra or or cobra, they press their hands into the floor. Their hands are alongside their rib cage, and they start to extend their lower back. They start to extend their upper back. And it looks like there's a great deal potentially of extension happening through their upper back because we see the rounded or curved shape of their rib cage from the front. And we associate that rounded curve shape from the front with what might also then be happening in the back. But as it turns out, when people are in full thoracic extension, their back is, is, at its end range typically just flat right so back bending in the upper back is actually flat bending mm. in the upper back so that kyphotic curve turns into a plateau right when we when we emphasize or maybe glorify the ability to extend the thoracic spine i wonder if what we think we're seeing is what what we're actually seeing right? Like when we see, we see somebody who's like got this big thoracic arch happening in urdhva Dhanurasana. is the thoracic spine, is it a valley from behind now? Is it flat? Is there even still a little kyphosis? And are we just being deceived by the shape? Maybe the breast tissue, right? Sure. Just a breast tissue, rib cage shape is, is very rounded from the front. When you, when you think about it, when you watch someone do a backbend, Because of what their shoulder blades are doing, because of what their arms are doing, you can't really see what the spine curves look like at all.
0: And also, to your point about good mornings from a moment ago, Mm. we're not very good at telling what's happening with the spine with our eyeballs. Mm -mm. So it can look like something and be not that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just because someone has pain in a back bend does not mean it's because of their hyperkyphosis or right. kyphosis or there anything to do with their upper back necessarily. It's good to have a little bit more mobility in the upper back rather than less. It's good to load the lower the upper back just like the lower back in all the ways that it needs to be strong and resilient. What we don't need to do is limit our ability to help people by creating problems where there aren't any. Right. And like holding open this idea that we we don't actually know what the the position of the thoracic spine is, regardless of whether or not we think we do. The fact of the matter is, I think we can be a better service to our students and we can do more good than harm when we just continuously recognize the limits of what we can even know, even if it's something we're seeing with our own eyes. Yeah. Looks can be very deceiving. Yep. Especially when we're looking at a structure like the spine, which is deep to so many large muscles and there's other big body parts influencing what we see like the rib cage and the pelvis. Now finally, our last and final topic, the neck. Mm. Tech neck. Did we do a whole tutorial on the neck? Oh my gosh. We did. Mm -hmm. Our most epic tutorial. The movement logic neck tutorial.
0: I think it is the most epic.
1: With our friend Jaisal. The neck tutorial looked at this topic of tech neck or text neck. Mm -hmm. What is this idea around text neck, Sarah? So text
0: neck or tech neck is this idea that everyone is now walking around with a what's called forward head position, which just means your head is in front of your body. If you were Bob the Drag Queen, it would be called head first (laughs) instead of purse first. But anyway, and that... (laughs) that's this position of that forward head is being caused by people staring at their phones, right? Mm -hmm. That's the text text neck. Uh, And I do, I mean, you see it. I see it all the time where people have their phone kind of down by their belly button and their head is completely flexed and they're looking down there to do whatever they're doing.
1: Yeah, you can also have a situation where if it's tech neck, it's like any type of tech where you're sitting at your computer desktop, right? And you're craning your face closer to the screen, but you're simultaneously also peering upward, right? right? So you've got a little bit of flexion at the lower cervical vertebrae and then some extension at the upper cervical vertebrae. Right. So there's a variety of of different things. Yeah,
0: there's a variety of like, you know, positions within it, but they all involve your head being in front of your body in some supposedly damaging way.
1: I've heard it compared to a crane. Yeah. Can you tell us like a little bit about this comparison where like the further with every inch your your head, right, there, right, there right. are even like graphs oh, on yeah. Instagram of like, pe- I shared one once where sure, it was I like I did the outline of a person and it just showed their head progressively moving more and more forward t- till yeah. at the end their head just falls off. Like, like literally falls no off. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, and I think also like the, the images got like redder and angrier <laughs> the further forward your head went. Yeah. This is a very, uh you know, people talk about it like a crane. with the idea that I mean your neck is not a crane because not only is your neck not inanimate (laughs) right Mm -hmm. but the all of the tone of the muscles in your body is responding to this neurological input Mm -hmm. as far as where to hold and where to not hold and and it's again it's the same thing of like if the only place you ever put your head is way far forwards then yeah that's not ideal but it in, in and of itself, it does not contain pain.
1: Right. That's not ideal to always have your head in one position. Exactly. But it'd be whatever, it,
0: whatever that's position a is
1: Lack of variability. Exactly.
0: Right. Right. It, it would not be ideal to always be staring at the ceiling. No. That
1: would hurt.
0: <laughs> yeah, probably after yeah. a while.
1: It reminds me of our tendency to want to think of the body as a machine. Right. right. As like this inanimate object that just wears down with use. And it also reminds me of tensegrity mm-hmm. and how the body is a tensegrity structure mm-hmm. it's like if you've ever seen like a little um, tensegrity model toy for babies like it's a bunch of dowels that crisscross each other in this beautiful like geodesic type structure and then there's rubber bands holding all those bones kind of apart but also connecting them when you when a, when a tensegrity structure like the body falls over it doesn't crumble into a million pieces like a skyscraper right right when the body falls over it's held together yes right and tension is distributed in ways that are very different with soft tissue physics because of the tensegrity of the tension members which are ligamentous soft tissue viscoelastic structures and then the compression members which are the, the hard mineral bone because of the way this structure functions together we cannot apply the same physics really calculations predictions to tensegrity structures as we as we can to like non tensegrity structures like buildings or or machines buildings and machines don't have viscoelastic material holding them together not yet so the calculations could potentially be more newtonian in nature involving like trigonometry and the in the like the rules of like you know basically like lever arms and gravity making predictions about like how how these buildings or structures like basically engineers are really good at this but as soon as you start to try to make those same predictions about the human body you're going to run into a lot of trouble because it just doesn't it just doesn't work
0: uh so nice and neat (laughs) well and and what is the research around tech neck and pain
1: okay so uh, surprisingly counterintuitively okay the story that you've been told about tech neck is Not so neat and tidy either, because there's a couple of research papers we'll link in the show notes, but I've already talked about these in past episodes. One is looked at smartphone use and found that the posture that people had while holding smartphones and the time they spent holding smartphones in that posture had no relationship to their neck pain. So again, posture and the relationship to pain is like non-existent. Right. and this was looking at young, young adults, and then also um, they found in another study, this is really interesting, they found that people with quote-unquote good neck posture mm-hmm. had higher incidences of neck pain than people who had that forward head posture.
0: Well, it keeps going back to this thing where we're finding people who are like more quote-unquote neutrally aligned are having more pain, and I, I think it, I mean this is a guess, but I It seems to me that the reason is not that the neutral position in and of itself is a bad position. It's this idea that people have got that they need to get into a neutral position and never leave it. Yeah. And it's the never leaving of any posture. My friend Mm -hmm. Trina, our friend Trina, Mm -hmm. and she's probably not – well, I heard it from her the most. Somebody else probably coined this, but she says often your best position is your next position. Yeah. And I say that to my patients all the time because they'll be like, what's the best way for me to sit in front of the computer? And I usually say as many different ways as possible. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And they're like, huh? And then I'm like, let's try them all.
1: Totally, totally. Um, Also, what was I going to say? The psychosocial component, the ramifications psychosocially Mm -hmm. of always thinking that you need to hold your body in a position are potentially detrimental because what the beliefs around that might be is that your body is not safe or capable and also that there are expectations for how you should look mm-hmm. and that, like, you're you're displaying some type of, like, moral failing right? or, like – You're lazy. You're lazy. If you slouch. Yeah, or you just – it's not like the male gaze. It's right. unattractive. It's not ladylike. Right. Mm-hmm. Stand up straight. Obey, right? Mm-hmm. So all these ideas around, like, how we should be can create a lot of suffering that can show up as the expression of, or the feeling of pain in the body. All right, Sarah. Yep. I think that's it. I think we pretty much uh, busted the dogma around the spine and now everyone knows how to have perfect spinal posture. Oh, fantastic. I hope that we have single-handedly helped people find the single one right position to be in at all times.
0: I think if people take anything away from this episode, it's that.
1: Hmm. I hope so. Me too. We're being terribly sarcastic. Thank you for staying with us on this deep dive into some of the dogma and the origins of said dogma oh. around where our spine should be. And hopefully, really, truly, sincerely, the takeaway is that we can get out of our own way by insisting that people adopt position for safety or injury prevention, because there's no relationship between those two things. Also, step into your power as a teacher knowing that in teaching alignment, you're really teaching variability, you're teaching proprioception, you're helping people learn about their body, move their body in new ways. And like, there is tons of value in teaching alignment. And I think we get out of our own way when we stop valuing alignment for things that it doesn't actually achieve or predict or do. You can check out our show notes for all of the references that we mentioned in this episode. There are many and please come on over to the movement logic website check it out we got some new pictures up there we haven't mentioned the new pictures oh that we, we got new pictures we got such nice pictures They're so good check them out all right thank you so much please if you like this episode subscribe rate and review and we will
0: see you next week